FM already in the newspapers and magazines, for it's been generally recognized as the biggest improvement in broadcasting since radio programs began. Today, ordinary radio sounds pretty good. It brings you a lot more tones and quality than those pioneer receivers ever did. But, ladies and gentlemen, it's not perfect. You can still distinguish ordinary radio from the real thing. WCBN FM achieves its perfection through an entirely new method of radio transmission developed by Major Edwin H. Armstrong, undoubtedly the greatest living scientist in the field of radio. WCBN FM is the result of a crusade to eliminate these listening ills. Ready today to give superior service and recognized as perfected by both the Federal Communications Commission and the radio world. In fact, Washington has called WCBN FM one of the most significant contributions to radio. It takes the superiority of WCBN FM Ann Arbor to bring such perfect reproduction to your ears as this sharp note of a small triangle being tapped. Each night at nine I head for this old bar It seems to be where my friends always are a few beer-loving guys where I can spend some lonely time And I always tip the waitress and the band Cause they're the only world for this beer-loving lonely man And as one beer-lover to another knows The sun somehow works away any sign to show The signs of a lonely man Here I can listen to the music of the band And it like I sure hate going home Or I ain't one beer lover with another Just one drunk all alone All right, that was Randy Schaefer doing, um, telling us about one beer lover to another. And I'm Amanda Uli. This is the Living Writers Program on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm sitting in the summer for T. Hetzel. Um, every Wednesday, we talk for an hour to a writer about his or her work. And this afternoon, we are fortunate to have, joining us by phone, Francis Stroh. Hi, Francis. Hi, Amanda. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And it's great that you chose a beer song to start us off on our hour of talking um, beer, among other things, right? Yeah. Well, I couldn't resist that song. It just... It, it's not the jingle that Stroh's beer is so well known for, but um, from one beer lover to another Stroh's beer, um, but uh, it somehow mirrored that sentiment, so I wanted to play that. It's perfect. You're a beer lover, and so am I. So here we are on WCBN. Here we are. We should be drinking <laughs> a beer right now. We should. Um, <laughs> Francis, I want to um, have our listeners sort of meet you a little bit more formally, so I'm going to read um, your bio um, to everyone. Francis Stroh was born in Detroit and raised in Gross Point, Michigan. She received her BA from Duke University and her MA from Chelsea College of Arts in London as a Fulbright Scholar. She practiced as an installation artist, exhibiting in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and London before turning to writing. Uh, Francis is the author of Beer Money, bringing it back to beer. Um, and is Beer Money your first book, Francis? It is my first book, and it is definitely a memoir of privilege and loss. And I know we're going to talk about that today. 
We are. You know, I don't know uh, whether all of our listeners will have read the book, and I wonder if we could kick off by you um, giving just a short summary of, um, of the book. Absolutely. It's really a coming-of-age story, my coming-of-age in the Strove family as the, the company was on the rise in the 70s and 80s, hitting the Forbes 400 mark. And I'm then uh, really going into a precipitous decline through the late 80s and 90s uh, and ending up being sold in a fire sale for essentially spare parts. A couple of breweries, Miller and Pabst, divided up our brands in the late 90s, and the company was sold. And um, But really it's of the personal side of this story and how the family coped with the fallout from the loss of the company, but also with a lot of addiction problems that were sort of circulating through the family, and in particular, my branch of the Strove family. Um, I had a brother who was a drug addict who uh, was busted by the federal government for dealing cocaine and died in his early 40s from a drug-related accident, um, tragically. Mm-hmm. So um, this is one of the threads that I weave through the narrative. And then my father, who worked for the Stroh Brewery, but really wanted to be a photographer and was an astonishingly talented artist, but was pressured to join the family business and spent his life also in a tragic way, always sort of wishing he'd followed his passion, doing photography, on the side as um, sort of just as a hobby. Um, I use his photographs as chapter openers in the book, and they really capture this sense of an idealized American family, which contrasts well with the truth-telling text, um, what was really going on in this family. And that's the story that I tell. It's so wonderful to hear you talk about, um, one of the things I loved about the book was kind of, to me, the two avenues. So much of the book is this very personal story about you and about growing up and your family. Um, but your family had this other story that was very business centric, um, and very prominent, um, in Michigan and certainly beyond it. Um, and I learned a lot about the Stroh brand and your business. And I learned about business in general, um, from that. Um, and it's nice to hear you talk about sort of those two ends of the story. Um, Mm. did you really tried to weave together, the major business events and also how the family was responding sort of from a very insider's point of view to these events. And certainly the story is told from my point of view, but I, I really made an effort around um, the story of the business to tell as an objective um, story and present as objective a point of view as I could. Um, just sort of presenting the facts, but um, seeing the family dynamics and how in some ways they uh, really led to the demise of the business, but also how the business itself and just sort of a late-stage company that ultimately was lost in the fifth generation of the Stroh family, how um, there was almost this sense of inevitability about that loss because of some of the dynamics that were set in motion very early on in earlier generations 
in the Stroh family. For example, the stubborn streak that really worked its way through the generations and served us very, very well in the beginning when my great-great-grandfather, Bernard Stroh, came over from Germany with $150 in his pocket and a family beer recipe and settled in Detroit <laughs> in 1850 and was brewing beer in his basement, selling it door-to-door out of a wheelbarrow, saving every spare penny to buy a horse-drawn carriage. Such a Detroit story. (laughs) Absolutely, and really an American dream story. You know, this this poor immigrant who comes over and makes so much of of this family recipe. Um, And really, it's a story of perseverance, hard work, building up a dream, following one's passion, and creating a nationally recognized brand. His kids um, took the company even further. They, they took it through prohibition by selling malt syrup for home brewing purposes. And when prohibition was repealed and my great-grandfather Julius had bought out his brother's share of the company, it just went gangbusters throughout the rest of the 20th century. My grandfather ran it during World War II. Again, the stubborn street came back. He refused to water down the beer formula like every other American brewer did when hops and wheat were rationed during the war. He just took, he, you know, reduced volumes and, and continued to make the strong-tasting beer. And again, that stubborn streak reared its head in the 80s when... My uncle Peter Strode decided we should grow through acquisition rather than incrementally as we had done up to that point and took out a massive half a billion dollar loan, which was five times our market cap, to buy Mm -hmm. the Schlitz Brewery. And we went national overnight. Suddenly, we'd been a regional brewer. We're a national brewer. We had all the Schlitz breweries. We'd also bought Schaefer. And yet, we were still very family one and family minded in terms of how we took this company national we didn't we really got in over our heads in my opinion and um, i think in a lot of brewing experts opinions we didn't have the wherewithal to get that big that quickly and who would it it was a very ambitious move Uh, We also didn't have the marketing budget to take all those brands national and to continue to promote them. So um, through a series of unfortunate strategic decisions, we ended up losing the company. I think, you know, we were talking before about the two avenues, the kind of business avenue and then the very personal, emotional um, path that you took in your growing up and that your family took. Um, What I love is how you kind of anchor um, all that internal stuff that you were going through and that you were feeling and that you were seeing in your family and you anchor it with those very real things that um, people who were watching uh, the news or watching the beer industry or watching Detroit at the time were seeing. So you have these, these real facts. Um, and I love to ask people who've written memoir about um, what's real, you know, in the book. And I, I mean, I'm of the opinion that um, everything a memoirist writes is real to them but it may not have been experienced or perceived the same way by the other people that were there at the time or the other people that experienced that. How do you, how do you take that kind of a statement about what's real in your book? Um, well, I think the business facts are undeniable. Right. Um, so those are definitely real. You know, my subjective experience of what a family business meeting was like and, you know, what was being felt 
um, I really took pains to communicate what my experience was. I never sort of got into any other characters' heads and mm-hmm. pretended that I understood how they were experiencing it. But um, certainly I do go into elaborate detail about one family business meeting in particular in the year 2000 after the company had been sold and some of our other investments were also doing badly. And the family was essentially being warned that, you know, save your money. Mm -hmm. We're still paying dividends right now, but this is not going to go on much longer. My father at that time was the the shareholder in our branch of the Stroh family. So he received that warning. But I think actually in the, in the scene in the book, he was out having a cigarette with his second wife when <laughs> the family was warned about that. And his second wife happens to be someone that I attended high school with in Gross Point. Uh-huh. So, um, and I, I sort of comment on the fact that they're coming back giggling after a cigarette break and he's missed that important piece of information. But my father really, he was an artist at heart. He, he wasn't financially minded. And he spent his money amassing these collections of Martin guitars and Gibson guitars and guns from the Wild West and all mm-hmm. these objects. that and cameras, right? Really, yes, cameras, vintage yeah. like a cameras, um, artwork, things that had fascinated him since childhood. And it was almost as if he had just been deprived of what he really wanted as a kid, so he was trying to compensate for that as an adult and just bought all these collections and filled, it, filled the house with these objects. And that's really wh- how he wanted to spend his money. He was not an investor. He was not a saver. So when he did reach what I understood through hindsight to be the end of his life, and there's a scene in the book where my son and I are having dinner with him at a restaurant, and he's just received a letter from the family holding company telling him that dividends will cease, the party's over, the money's Mm -hmm. gone. And he really hadn't saved anything. And, And I had this insight in that moment as I sat there with, you know, the three generations sat together, my father, me, and my son, and I realized it's really striving for something that gives life its meaning. And my father really would have loved to have strived in the world as an artist, but instead was pressured to join the business and had never lived a happy life had, you know, really become an alcoholic through his own um, mm-hmm. lack of a sense of fulfillment and, um, and anger at himself. And so that tragically, of course, rubbed off on a couple of his kids, and one of them became a drug addict. And so it's really this story of cause and effect and the ways that we kind of undermine ourselves and in many ways family businesses can undermine the family members by putting that pressure on the you know the future generations and sort of brainwashing (laughs) kids from the day that they're born that they should work at the company And, and in my family that happened to have been the boys it was a very patriarchal family in that sense the boys were groomed from birth to believe that this was their company. They had to lead it, and that's where they would spend the rest of their lives. I think that's common for men in a family to to have in a family business family. Um, that is, um, I to think really it is be very common. So the women, in some sense, are you know free of that legacy. There's a certain there's a window of opportunity for women in these families, and I was able that's to different. go out into the world and really fulfill 
my dream to be a first a photographer, then an installation artist, and later a writer. Um, in a way, that door was open to me in a way that it wasn't for uh, the boys in my generation. Do you feel like your family was grooming you for that, for like a career as an artist and a writer, or, um, or were they grooming you to be free and to make your own choices? Well, I really feel as if actually... I was, and my my mother was grooming me to go get an MBA, and that was just ultimately, even though I have business sense and I do, you know, run my own business as a as an investor here in San Francisco, I really my like my father have the heart and the soul of an artist, and had seen um, through my father's example of how unhappy one can become not following that dream and that vision for oneself. And so through his example, I suppose it was a kind of grooming. I knew that's what I had to do. I I just did some soul searching while I was in college. I had considered getting a PhD in psychology and becoming a psychotherapist. And I decided, no, I'm going to be an artist. And so I I really followed that path to its ultimate conclusion. Yeah. Well, when we come back, I want to talk to you more about that process and sort of how you came to be an artist and and to write the story of your family. First, it seems like it's time that we hear a Stroh's beer commercial from 1984. How does that sound? That sounds great. Okay, here goes. I'd sure like another Stroh. Alex, two cold Stroh's. Where do you see this? Just open the refrigerator. Just open one bottle. Just open the other. Now he's pouring yours. Now he's pouring mine. Alex, you better be drinking your water. <laughs> From one beer lover to another, Strohs. From one beer lover to another, Francis. <laughs> there was. Well, that's a great ad. I'm glad you played that one, Amanda, because um, the Alex the Dog ads in the mid-'80s were famous, famous Stroh's beer ads, and everyone seems to still remember them, much like the Swedish bikini team ads for old Milwaukee. (laughs) They're very Um, charming, yeah. (laughs) Which I go into detail about in the book and what happened with that ad campaign that we did. But uh, it's a fun ad. It's, you know, Alex the dog goes to the fridge, gets out the beer, and pours it in his bowl and drinks it instead (laughs) of bringing it to his owner in the other room at the poker table. So, uh, and Alex the dog actually went on, I read about this online recently, went on tour around the U.S. because it was such a famous ad campaign. And, you know, we did all kinds of events, promotional events for Stroh's Beer, and Alex the dog was present at many of those events. So, um, (laughs) he really had had quite a life for a while there. Um, This is the Living Writers Program on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're talking today to Francis Stroh, author of Beer Money. I'm your host, Amanda Yuli. Um, And Francis is joining us uh, via phone today, um, July 26, 2017. She's in San Francisco. We're in Ann Arbor, and we're talking beer and memoir and her family um, and families in general um, and writing about them. Um, Francis, you wrote about your family, and we just talked before about how you were... um, kind of groomed uh, to have that uh, freedom to be an artist and ultimately a writer, which you are. 
Um, but I wonder if you could talk about how you came to write this story. I feel like, you know, when I talk to people who've written about their families, um, it kind of goes one of two directions. People either have labored over the decision about whether it's right and whether they could and whether it would work to write about their families, Mm -hmm. or they've had that kind of gut feeling just forever. Like, this is my story and I'm going to tell it. It's just a matter of getting it out. So I wonder if you could... um, put yourself in one of those camps or talk more about it? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure I could put myself exactly in one of those camps, but it, it was a story I was writing for years before I wrote this memoir, and it was a story that I felt I would write someday, but at the time that I had that insight, I... That there was not a conclusion yet. I needed an ending to the story before I could begin it. And so I wrote other things. I wrote short stories. I worked on a novel for a while. That was really a way of just teaching myself how to write a longer narrative so that when I came to write Beer Money after my father died, the company had been lost, dividends had ended, and the party was over, and my brother Charlie was also gone, suddenly it felt like okay, the ending is here, and now I can go back to the beginning and write this and write it up to the end. And, um, and so it was really just a timing thing. Suddenly the channels had opened, and um, as writers know, it's, it's the voice that carries the story, and, and the voice presented itself. And I firmly believe that once um, a writer nails that voice, it's just a matter of showing up at the desk every day because the story ultimately will write itself. And it doesn't mean that the writer doesn't have to do the work, but um, it's really the voice that drives the story. And that happened in such a clear way for me that um, there was just no doubt in my mind that you know the story, I would begin it and I would finish it. And, um, and so... That's really how it happened. It was about a four-year process. And it felt a lot of people say, gosh, it was so courageous of you to write this book. And when people say that to me, I, I usually respond, you know what? It felt more like a creative impulse. It had nothing to do with courage. It was just something that I was compelled to do. And, um, and it would have been maybe in some ways courageous not to do it. It just, it really was, it was something that just had to be written. I had to tell the story. It came to the point where it would have been impossible not to. It was an artwork that had to be created by you. Exactly. And is that how you felt when you were earlier in your, your art career, when you were um, doing installation art and other work in London? It did feel that way. I mean, there were just there were pieces that I just knew I had to make, and um, I actually touched on this family story in one piece that I did, which I go into detail. I sort of vividly portray in the prologue to the book, um, but it was really the only time um, I call it the family piece. Mm-hmm. But um, it was the only time I really delved into the family story during the period of time that I was an installation artist. And in that piece, I had been curated into a show at San Francisco Camera Work Gallery and um, was given a a room and and interviewed 
did a video installation piece where each of my fa- an interview of each of my family members was on a screen on a flat screen TV in a room with six flat screen TVs with all of the members of my branch of the Stro family talking at the same time, telling the family story from each of our very disparate points of view, and um, in a room where these voices all converged. And it was a very explosive piece. It was much more kind of cathartic and explosive and disturbing for the viewer than I ever could have anticipated. So I knew at that point that I'd opened a can of worms that I would have to explore further later. And mm-hmm. But it was about 20 years later that I began the book. Sometimes books can, books can take 20 years, I, I've heard. <laughs> um, well, I, yeah, I or guess more. it was... Um, this story was unfolding. It was continuing right. to unfold. And, and I think ideas really can take 20 years or, to um, or more. bake yeah. to the point where they're ready to come out fully formed. Yeah. I love that um, art piece that you reference um, that you just told us about. And I love that in contrast to your book, which, again is how you experienced all of these events. And that notion of perspective in memoir is so interesting to me. Um, I often think about memoirists and how their other family members would have written the same story. Um, And it sounds like there's um, agreement in your family about aspects of it. And probably some people experience some of this differently than you, Um, which is... um, it's great to kind of celebrate the authentic and like incredibly vivid and real perspective that you brought to the way you experienced it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, um, I feel as if, well, my mother who's been extremely supportive of the book has like her first statement about it when she read the manuscript said, and this was to someone other than me, it's all true. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, your, so your mother's actually proving me wrong. So your mother read it and felt that you had um, more journalistically uh, rather than emotionally kind of captured the, the uh, events of your youth. Is that right? She did. I mean, yeah. there, she didn't have um, a different perspective. You hear that all the time. Oh, yeah. no, it didn't happen like that. It happened like uh-huh. this. Well, uh-huh. that isn't a conversation that we ever had. Um, She really sort of saw things in a similar light. The events happened in my memory the same Uh way that they had happened in hers. And, uh, and so that was great. That was very validating. Yeah. I think it's always valuable to capture those things that happen in our lives, right? Whether people see them the way you do or not, it must be extremely validating if your mother sees them the same way. Um, but I can imagine it would be important both ways. Um, so you wrote this book and, um, I, I have to ask kind of what changed either, uh, what changed in your family or what changed in you or the world after this book? Well, I think writing a memoir is certainly for me, but I I know this to be true of other memoirists. Um, It's a way of coming to terms with the events that one writes about. One tends to write about events that, A, somehow feel unresolved, and B, are somehow um, almost taboo to write about. but the writer feels compelled to get these events 
out on the page and to connect them with other events that, uh, in a way, that creates meaning out of what, before the book existed, were just disparate events in one's past uh, and not necessarily connected in any way. So uh, writing a memoir is certainly a way to connect the dots and, and come to terms with the events in a new way and to feel very sort of resolved and cleansed. And uh, uh-huh. so I will say, you know, that has been an extremely positive side effect that I was not expecting and certainly didn't write the book to feel that way. Um, so that's a big change for me, and it's been a way to move forward and just sort of, you know, see the past, the story that I chose to tell in the book as, um, as really a story and, and a story that hits enough universal notes that it's actually compelling and interesting to others and and has created quite a bit of dialogue. I've heard from all kinds of people who um, not only have had possibly family businesses in their families or addiction problems in their families or artists who, you know, had to find their own way and break out of a family where there was some kind of pressure to do something else. Um, But you know, so all of, and many of these fans and, you know, people have written me letters and people mm-hmm. have shown interest in the book have had wrestled with, you know, two or three of those things. And so there seems to be something in um, sort of the more detailed you are about your own life and the more sort of specific it is, the more universal the message and it sort of like hits these universal notes with others and that's been an incredibly gratifying experience I can imagine I, I think it's always great if, if others can sort of see themselves and what you write about or, or the art you make um, and that in my experience of seeing this book kind of out in the world I've seen it resonate in the literary community and in the business community to some extent like you were saying um, which is mm-hmm. great yeah it's true it's been fantastic and that is something that I of course hoped for but certainly did not direct the book towards the business community it's it's a very personal story and of course ties in the business story the the unraveling of the family the business and Detroit sort of all simultaneously but um, to see how much the book has been embraced by the business community and and being invited to speak at conferences to family business groups and really helping these families who are in business together avoid some of the major pitfalls that the Stroh family fell into. To know that a story like this can help others is very, very rewarding. It's oh. been great. Oh, it must be. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, uh, you have a lot of perspective there. That's really important. Uh, we're talking to Frances Stroh. She's author of Beer Money, and this is The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Frances grew up in the Detroit area, and we're going to hear a Detroit uh, selection of music. Um, how about some MC5 for a little break? And then we'll come back with Frances Stroh in a moment. Going down about the rock road dance of town. You know I just got 
That's the MC5 with tonight, 1972, and this is The Living Writer Show. I'm your host tonight, Amanda Yuli, and we have Frances Stroh joining us on the phone. Hi, Frances. Hey, Amanda. Thank you for playing that MC5 song. That is the song that was playing in the car in the very one of the last scenes in the book as uh, my brothers and I are driving down to Detroit River Place um, after my father's funeral. And we're driving through Detroit in 2009, MC5, we're playing the stereo, and uh, we are just sort of taking in the decimation of the city, which was pretty profound back in 2009. totally mind-blowing actually and to see the resurgence of the city on the level that it has <laughs> happened since 2009 since it's just yeah. amazing it's i've never seen anything like it to know that with a lot of love and attention and, and investment a city like detroit can come back to the degree that it has and you know really roaring back to life um, and a walking city again. It's just miraculous. It really is. Yeah, it's a whole, um, it's a it's a big change. Detroit has seen many changes just since 2009, as you were saying, when you were listening to the MC5 in your car. Um, and even more accelerated change since then. Um, it seems like every few months uh, things are different. Um, That's right. And, of course, 826 Michigan coming into Detroit is a course. major change. <laughs> it's a, it's a an important one. hugely positive change. Exactly. Um, Detroit's a beautiful place, um, and I've experienced it over a few different, you know, over many years, um, like you have. Um, I love to hear from you about the way that you and your family um, experienced Detroit when you were growing up, because you were um, growing up in the suburbs, so uh, Gross Point, right? That's right. Just outside and, the city. Unlike many family businesses that moved Mm -hmm. out of the city after the riots. We always stayed in Detroit. Um, The brewery, the strawberry was there until 1985. Um, It was demolished at that point, but we moved our corporate headquarters over to Stroh River Place right on the river, and we're actually still there. We still have a presence there. So um, the Stroh family has always felt a strong commitment to the city, even at a time when other families and um, businesses were leaving, of course, in the 80s, when 70s and 80s, when the automotive industry was moving out to the suburbs and abroad, the Strohs stayed. And um, sometimes it wasn't always to our benefit. We made an enormous investment in the riverfront, a multi-use campus, an office building, hotel, Mm -hmm. apartments. Um, in the 80s and really lost most of that investment because Detroit's um, real estate values continued to decline. But it was dedication to the city and, and wanting to play our role and bring it back that inspired that investment. And so, of course, living in the suburbs and driving downtown to the company, there's always been a huge contrast between you know, that dividing line, Alter Road, um, in Detroit, uh, right next to Gross Point. I mean, everyone who's ever driven over that line knows that you're suddenly in a different world when you enter Gross Point. And yet now, driving downtown to Woodward Avenue and, and Midtown, 
there's another world waiting for people there that's just as much of a contrast. So um, Detroit, I think the, the Renaissance is spreading out to the edges. It's changing dramatically. It's changing very quickly. And, uh, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to see. It is wonderful. We're at an important moment where um, I think we all need to think about including all Detroiters in that change, um, because I don't know that, you know, we all agree that every Detroiter has been kind of um, had the same opportunities. Um, but that's for sure. Yeah, I, but, but I completely agree um, about the, um, I don't know, the tensions of that line, you know, between Gross Point and Detroit. Um, they those tensions seem vivid even now, even given all, all the change. Um, but I imagine that that has all kind of always been. And I, I wonder if you remember that, um, in your I childhood. remember, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Wow. I describe yeah. it in a couple of scenes in the book, leaving Gross Point, driving downtown, uh, Jefferson road. Mm-hmm. And, um, at one point, you know, as a kid and later on as a teenager with a group of friends going down to walk around the Uniroyal tire plant, which is abandoned at that time and had mm-hmm. not been torn down yet. And so um, in both of those scenes, I'm very aware of uh, the decimation of Detroit in contrast to the sort of wide green lawns and yeah. um, stately houses in Gross Point and um, and I'm also, I also compare not only the experience of um, traveling between those places, but, you know, my experience of uh, really what like, my father's attitude was. You know, there was a point in our childhood where he thought we should lock our doors when we drove into Detroit. And yeah. he was acting protective. But um, this sense that we had to keep something out, you know, I was very struck by that and, yeah. um, and saddened by it. And there was a part of me that didn't understand it because we, I used to stay in Detroit as a kid with a wonderful woman, Ollie Harold, who took care of us when we were kids and, mm-hmm. you know, w- lived in our house like five days a week. Mm-hmm. And and her family and you know they were african-american and we stayed with them in a neighborhood in detroit where my parents would go off on vacation so i knew her family very well and felt like a member of this detroit family and um and so it, it just didn't make sense to me that we had to be scared but you know I also lived in Detroit and I like, knew this Detroit family very closely. Those messages are, you know, then and now c- coded and har- hard to decipher, I think, for everyone. Um, but thank Absolutely. you. So I think, yeah. you know, just from a child's point of view, um, the way I express it in yeah. the book, I think um, I really tried to embody those contradictions and explore them, you know, from this kid's point of view who is confused. And again, it's that two worlds. It's sort of the inner emotional world and the business world, and it's the Detroit and the suburban world and um, who you are and who your your parents and your family wanted you to be. Um, Good stuff. So, Francis, I would love for you to read. Are you um, able to read us a few pages from the book so that our listeners can hear um, a little more tangibly uh, the story of beer money? Yes, I am. I'm actually going to read a section um, from my teenage years. Okay. Since we're playing some great music today, this is going to invoke 
um, another great musical artist, um, this section of the book. So the year is roughly 1984. It was a dark morning in January that the wreck had happened. Partying our way through the inevitable depression of a Michigan winter, my friends and I had been out all night, then attended a sunrise meditation class at the Hare Krishna Mansion in Detroit. The Krishna Center was located on the sprawling estate of the Fisher Mansion, one of the old houses emblematic of the automotive industry's heyday, donated to the sect by Alfie Ford. Meditation, music, drugs, and alcohol, they were all facets of the same mind-expanding trajectory, especially potent when combined. My friends and I had all read On the Road and the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and with the help of state-of-the-art amphetamines and a healthy dose of cynicism, we had taken the legacy of the 50s and the 60s to new heights in the 80s. The Corinthian pillars of the meditation hall were edged in gold. A robed, pot-bellied man with a Krishna ponytail sat lotus-style facing the large group. We sat down in our stocking feet and tried to look spiritual. Sweet-smelling incense burned in all four corners of the vast room. And now the chanting began. I glanced around at the other meditators as their voices rose. A beautiful woman with a shock of buzzed orange hair was sitting alongside us, cross-legged. Annie Lennox, her knee just inches from mine. Recognizing her immediately, we broke into ecstatic, wide-eyed smiles. We were living a cultural moment, absorbing her palpable aura of celebrity, metabolizing a cocktail of gorgeous chemicals, chanting. We had finally arrived. Annie was stunning, younger than we would have thought, and amazingly, a real person. Her voice converged with ours like a train escalating to the heavens, echoing off the Baroque gold-leafed ceiling of the Fisher Mansion ballroom with the rapturous beat of life itself. After the meditation class, my friends and I popped coating tabs to soften the landing, then trudged through the snow back to my father's car. The roads were thick with ice. The overcast January sky hung low like the dark concavity of an overturned bowl. I started the engine. Road conditions never worried me, even in blizzards. I could drive on ice blindfolded. I accelerated quickly, skidding against the curb. Whoa, everyone shouted, laughing. They smoked and debated the age of Annie Lennox, seatbelts still unbuckled. The lawns were buried under filthy old snow. No other cars on the road. I accelerated again, feeling the pedal give obediently beneath the stiff leather sole of my right cowboy boot. Brick houses whipped past us in blurs of reddish brown. The car heater roared with cold air. I pulled a Marlboro from my pack. No one could find the lighter, so someone in the back seat just held out a lit cigarette. I turned around and leaned into the back my left hand still on the wheel, my starved lungs drawing on that fragile point of light with mighty focus, the last burning ember within miles. But my cigarette didn't catch right away, and that's when it happened. We slammed to a stop with a great exploding sound. 
our bodies thrown backward as if from an electric shock. Then everything stopped again. A telephone pole I saw stood inches from my face, just beyond a windshield web of shattered glass. The front of the car was an accordion of crushed steel. I was still in the driver's seat. We were all still in our seats. Shit, everyone said at once. We were alive, though. And that's the story of the car accident. Thank you, Frances. Um, that was Frances Stroh reading from her memoir, Beer Money. Um, and this is The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Uh, Francis, you talked about your cultural moment encountering Annie Lennox in uh, meditation class. I think we're going to hear a cultural moment from um, last year, Patti Smith performing um, Bob Dylan's A Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall. Uh, we'll hear a little bit of that, and then we'll come back and talk more to Francis Stroh on The Living Writer Show. Stumbled alongside of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I've crawled down six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven sad forests Been out in front of a dozen dead oceans Been ten thousand miles on the mouth of a graveyard it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain's gonna fall. What did you pa Patty Smith singing Bob Dylan. Um, Francis, why did you pick Patty Smith since we're talking about Detroit today? <laughs> Well, okay, so there are a lot of reasons that I picked uh, Patti Smith singing that song when she's accepting the Nobel Peace Prize for Bob Dylan in Sweden last year. Um, but the reason, I, I just love her version of the song. I love that she accepted the award for him. I love that she forgot the lines during the performance and, and they had to start over. Um, and her ability just to be vulnerable on that level, um, there's something about Patti Smith that just, you know, it, she transcends everything. She's just such an icon for me. You said it. And um, so, but Patti Smith uh, moved to Detroit in the early 70s to be with Fred Sonic Smith, the MC5. She lived at the Book Cadillac with mm -hmm. Fred. And, uh, and, so during the years when I was still in Detroit, she was also there. I never saw her, never met her anywhere. Um, I, th I did actually see a concert, but never met her in person. Um, and yet she just, you know, seems to have fit into Detroit on just such an intimate, wonderful level and is an artist who inspires me, her yeah. book. Just Kids was a huge inspiration while I was writing Beer Money. 
and uh, and the way that she creates this hybrid between um, the literary. Um, she's a poet. She's a punk rock artist. She's a performance artist. She's everything, and she rolls it all into into her show. Um, I saw her in San Francisco. She's still doing it. Um, I saw her about two years ago. So she's just mm-hmm. a very inspirational artist for me. She's amazing. Uh, my husband and I saw her in March, in um, not in Detroit, but in Royal Oak. Um, and I, I like to think that her Detroit shows are something special and something different. But I don't know. That's the only place I've seen her. Um, yeah, she's so powerful. Um, so we have a few minutes left. And Francis, we haven't... Um, we haven't talked much about your writing process yet. Um, I'd love to know, kind of, in, you said it took you four years to write the memoir. Um, were you um, writing every day? Were you writing in a routine? Were you collaborating? Or did you have readers um, joining you kind of in that process? Four years can be a long time, a long, lonely time with your own story. So tell us uh, more about that. Well, that's, those are all great questions. I am um, a writer who needs a routine and my routine during much of those four years was actually to wake up extremely early in the morning around five because I found I would get my best writing done between five and seven before my son woke up and then the breakfast and driving to school process started Mm -hmm. and um and so I would already feel as if I'd accomplished a great deal by 7 a.m. I would take my son to school and then I would come back and sit back down at my desk and continue working but those early morning hours were such a creative time and I find that the routine is essential for me when I go away on a vacation or you know have to break up the routine for whatever reason I have to get it back as quickly as possible so um, it's was also important to have readers. I was in a writer's group early on. Um, I had been in the group for years before I started this book. And interestingly, I found after about sort of getting to close to having a first draft that it became important to have fewer voices involved and to just, I was really on a roll with it. And so I left the group and continued writing and then Um, had a few trusted readers that I would send the manuscript to and that seemed to work well. I think a lot of writers say that, that there can be too much noise when you're in a big group and you have lots of input. So, um, good to hear. And then um, you said the the routine continues. Are you writing anything now? I'm working on a novel. I'm not going into a lot of detail about it, but it's exciting. I'm I'm really uh, looking forward to having a first draft ready and uh, because beer money reads so much like a novel i feel as if many of those um fictional techniques um are already sort of firmly established in my work and of course i was writing fiction before i wrote beer money so mm-hmm. it feels now it's sort of at the point where it's starting to feel like second nature which is great that's amazing oh excuse me i think um you know when i think back to passages in your book, one of the things that impressed me um, are the very evocative, very fine details that you bring to it. Um, and first of all, I'm extremely impressed if you were recording those details at the time. Um, but, but I think really you were so good at kind of getting your mind and maybe your body back into those moments in your youth. And I, I wrote down in my scribbled notes here, um, you talked about 
um, having an aching stomach and the room had soft light and you know you talk about the qualities of the furniture in in your childhood home um, those details I, if you could talk more about how you kind of conjured those details and whether that feels to you like what you're doing with writing fiction now yeah, yeah. it's just it's important to um the way that I work is I sort of I get the story down and then I start layering in all of that detail both on an emotional level but also the details of you know what it's like to be in the room and linking what the room looks like to my psychology in that moment and uh, and so there's just sort of like this I try to create this seamless fusion between self and environment and um, and I it's just there's I some people who've sent me letters about the book responding to it have said you seem to have had a photographic memory and I think on some level I do I just I remember smells taste like what it felt like to be in that room or in that moment or in the car talking to my brothers or you know in any particular place I, I have very vivid memories that um, I was able to tap into by spreading all kinds of family photos across my desk and um, having, you know, working in an environment for four years where I would, I would gaze at these photographs and it would conjure, they would conjure moments that had been long forgotten, like this treasure chest of memories that suddenly popped open. And there's a way of opening those channels and getting into that state where it all comes back. Um, it's a pretty amazing process once one gets going with it. You talk about having a f somewhat photographic memory, but you also had photos. You had your father's photos, and I'm sure other photos too, um, that That's very true. beautifully depict um, some of those details and I'm sure are such a, a help in kind of getting back in that mindset. Um, they were absolutely a tremendous help. And, but interestingly, the photographs of my father's, of course, I had some at my house, but I didn't open those 12 enormous moving boxes full of my father's photography until after the book had been written and the edits were complete. And really? at that point, I started going through all of his old work that he had left me in his will. Um, looking for images to put in the book as chapter openers. And many of those images confirmed my memories. That's that incredible. Had, they were already in the book in yeah. full-blown detail. That's pretty incredible. I would have it not is. guessed that. It really that was is. The Even that scene with the Cadillac when we <laughs> come home from the swimming club and he's, he's got a Cadillac Seville in the driveway and my brother and I get in, and he shows us the electric windows, which were a new thing in the 70s, and, you know, the eight-track uh, tape player and all of that, and the excitement over, you know, this luxurious new car of my father's. There's a picture of me sitting in that car, <laughs> <laughs> probably on that very day that he had brought it home for the first time, and it confirmed the image that I created in the book of what that was like. Yeah, it was very real. Um, we don't have much time left, but we should talk about one new development that I can think of um, that's happened since your book was released last year, um, which is that the Stroh's brand has had a little resurgence. 
Um, do you want to talk about that for a moment? I'd love to. I, it was such a wonderful thing when the brand was launched a couple of months after Beer Money came out and dovetailed so nicely with the release of the book. Totally unplanned. Paps and I did not plan this together. It was, um, I think, but the synergies have been wonderful for both of us, I think, mm-hmm. certainly for me. And, uh, and they were nice, very nice to send out four cases of the beer for an event I did at uh, the Battery, which is a club here in San Francisco. Um, so 80 people came, and we did a new Stroh's Beer beer tasting, and I had a great conversation about the book with Dick Costello, who is the former CEO of Twitter and is from Detroit right, um, right. in front of the audience. So that worked out great. People love the new beer. I love it. I love the retro packaging, the fact that it's a recipe from the 1850s when my great-great-grandfather was brewing the beer is exciting, and, uh, and the fact that they've brought it back as a craft brew is just sort of a wonderful new direction for it. So I love everything about it. I think Paps did a great job. Yeah, it's kind of its own little new new twist on uh, new or resurgence um, of the story and of the brand, so I'm so glad to see that myself. Um, Okay. Yeah, I couldn't have planned that better myself. I can't believe you didn't plan it. It seems like too perfect. I actually had, I, re- I wanted uh, the beer to come out around the time of the book. I talked with a cousin at one point. We talked about licensing the name back from Paps and like relaunching the beer. We never did it and suddenly it just happened. So um, that was amazing and now you have like the perfect your book is an event in and of itself with the beer and the new things it's just like wonderful um so this is the living writers program i'm amanda yuley and we are on wcbn fm ann arbor we've been talking this hour to francis stroh who is author of beer money um thank you francis for joining us this hour thank you amanda it's been so much fun being here i really enjoyed it it's been wonderful to talk um, about your book and about your family. Um, we're going to close this hour with a song that you chose. I'm going to ex- have you explain why you chose it, um, and then we'll close out the show. This is um, going to be the Talking Heads with Burning Down the House. Tell us why, Francis. It's a song that I talk about in the book at sort of a critical moment in my teenage years. Um, it's this. We all would sit around and watch MTV kind of all day long in the summers in the 1980s. And um, there's a scene in the book where my brother and I are watching MTV and Burning Down the House plays. And then suddenly the video of Burning Down the House plays. And suddenly my mother takes us out in the car and like drives us to the end of our cul-de-sac and tells us that she has decided to divorce our father. And um, so it, it was obviously very related to that moment, but in, a, in a, the larger picture, I feel as if it's a song that in some ways is emblematic of the story that I tell. Um, and, and sometimes you really, the house has to burn down on a metaphorical level in order to start over and to create the purposeful life that one really wants to live. Thank you, Francis. Here are the talking heads.
The thing is that they were eternally curious. Mm. They wanted to find new ways of doing what they were doing, and new harmonies, new endings to songs mm. and that kind of thing. They would always want to look beyond the horizon, not just yes. at it. There was one time on Rain where I decided to play around with tapes. Yeah. And I took John's voice off and turned it back to front and mm. slid, slid it around a bit and then put it in on the end of the song. And I played it to John when he came back. He said, that's gear. What is it? And I said, it's you. What is it? WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Que es, son las seis de la tarde. Bienvenidos a la media hora norteña. Sé que juras 